to the Four Jack Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to season four of the Four Jack Podcast, Canada's number one award-winning golf podcast and the fastest-growing podcast in America. Brought to you by our friends over at TaylorMade Golf. Their new lineup for 2022 is dropping January 4th, so stay tuned for some sneak peeks in the coming weeks. We would also like to thank multiple Four Jack show sponsors. Without them, this product could not be possible. Jackson Labs, Therabody, Cricket Shirts, Galvin Green, Peretti Golf, the Wash That All Down, Hatcho Tequila Soda. To kick off season four, we have brought in the big guns. On tonight's show, we have some serious horsepower for one of the NCAA's big five. But before we get into tonight's guests, let's head around the country and check in with the Four Jack family on the road. Big D, what's happening? Everything's good here. Southern California had a little fog, a little mist today, so we got all seasons. But, you know, that's what you have to suffer through when you're down here. It's kind of only in the 65, 70 degree uh, Fahrenheit range. I'm not sure what that translates to Canadians. I never really understand that. But either way, we're still in shorts. We're still in short sleeve shirts. And uh, most importantly, we are in amazing shape been a very mild winter so far golf courses are green grasses are up we were 14 and a half today for our monday outing on the stint meter so fantastic day golf courses great 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 shape membership allows that 14 and a half as our guest will tell you in a little while we not only allow it we encourage it our goal is always 15 but yeah we uh on a monday outing it was a little quick but they were a pretty good group of players today so it was uh we got them off got them in and uh, scores were actually pretty low for a, for a Monday outing. So it was a good day today, but happy to be on the pod with you. And uh, I'm sure we'll have David joining us here in just a little bit. He had a little travel issue, so he should be jumping on momentarily. Yeah, I was going to say we're down a couple guys tonight. We got somebody joining in via satellite, somebody in an Uber right now trying to get a hotel room. So without further ado, uh, we'd like to welcome the head coach of the University of Southern California's women's golf team, Mr. Justin Silverstein. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me, fellas. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Looks like David's going to join us here. So he's just getting in under the wire. What's going on? You're, you're, you're down the street from Derek. So I can, uh, I can assume you can only complain so much about the weather as he did. It was cold today. We had to turn the heat on in the house. Um, it was brutal, but you know, I got, got to stay in a you know a couple mile radius of Derek, make sure he behaves himself um, from time to time. It gets a lot of hand, but uh, no, things are good down here in Redondo beach or Mosa beach. Uh, just loving life. So Parksy, right there. I'm in shorts and short sleeve shirt. The guy that grew up in San Diego is in heats on and he's under a blanket. So I think we can all understand what we're talking about because out here, I still, I, again, we're not going to do the whole Scott Van Pelt things we hate, but beanies in California drive me nuts. Can't take it's them. Toots drive me crazy. That's standard. It's funny. Whenever you come down in Southern California, you can always tell who the tourists are because right. everybody's wearing shorts and tank tops and everybody that's a local is like bundled up to the nine. So Pretty funny uh, disassociation. It, it, you know, and before we get into it, you and I both know if you have to wear a toque, as David would know well as he's joining in now, you don't want to have one on, right? Like the last thing in the world you ever want to put on your body is a hat to cover your ears because it's cold outside. And down here, it's just, you know, it's just part of life. And I get it, but I don't. Hips survive. <laughs> David, David, welcome. Welcome oh, in. Sorry, yeah, no, no, that's good. Welcome in, so- David. You made welcome, it. welcome. Yes, I made it. I'm at uh, one of my favorite spots in the world, the Missouri Athletic Club. There are little Jack Buck Awards going on. May have ran into some NHL legends in the lobby. Gave a little fist pump to a guy that's from my hometown. May wear a jersey number 99 and uh, checked in, got here, and I'm only, what, 14 minutes late. So life's decent. Justin, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to spend much time listening to the show, but there's always some component of Toronto that's included in the ecosystem of this. So now that we've touched on the center of the universe, we'll uh, we'll slide back down to Southern California and get into a little uh, USC women's golf team. So talk us through where you're at right now, what's going on in your world, and all the excitement we can look forward to. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so we are um... – kind of in the middle of our season right now. We're in a little break period. Um, So we're one of the few NCAA sports that plays fall and spring semesters. Um, So right now is kind of our our players' true off season. Um, We ended in early November at our final event for the fall season at Indonesia um, on Kona, which was a beautiful place to end our fall season. Um, And our kids now have about six to eight weeks off to uh, concentrate on school. And then in a couple of weeks, once finals are over, they'll head home. Uh, for a few weeks, spend some time with family, hopefully practice a bunch, 
Um, then we ship them back out to us that first week of January to get get started with our fall with our spring segment, which is our championship segment. So that's a really important time of year. Um, right now for us coaches, uh, we're not even allowed to practice with them because they're in finals. So they they should be doing their schoolwork. Um, and then myself and our assistant coach are really concentrated right now on recruiting. Um, so we've made a few recruiting trips, had a few recruits come to campus. We actually just finished our early signing period. So we signed two recruits who will be joining us next season, which is always my favorite time of year when those kids finally get assigned that piece of paper um, and, and officially become part of the Trojan family. Um, so this is actually kind of a nice time of the year for us. A little bit of downtime, not waking up at you know 445 every day, you know, push it closer to 530. So <laughs> getting a little bit more rest now, which is nice. Sleep in time. I like that. So maybe give us a little insight into how the first part of the year is working out for you guys, how the team's looking. Yeah, so we need a pretty interesting fall segment for us. Um, you know, perennially, we're one of the one, two, three, four uh, top ranked teams in the country. Uh, this fall segment, we're, we're a little bit ranked a little lower than that. Um, we had a big transition this season. We lost four players ranked in the top 25 in the world amateur golf rankings this past season, um, which was an incredible achievement to have that on your roster. But it's also, you know, in a coach's mind, you're looking forward to like, goodness gracious, how are we going to replace that? Um, you know, fortunately for us, we brought in a freshman who's finished the fall segment, ranked third in the country. Um, her name's Cindy Ko. She's originally from Beijing, but now lives in Valencia, which is just outside Los Angeles. Um, she had one of the best uh, fall seasons for any freshman we've ever had. So adding her in was a big replacement for, for those four. Um, and we kind of we've kind of struggled to find the lineup we, we desired this fall segment. We were a couple bodies short. Um, one of our perennial starters, Malia Nam, who is a reigning Pac-12 freshman of the year, had to have hip surgery the first week of school, uh, which was a huge bummer for us. So she was out all fall. Good news is she'll be back in early spring. So hopefully we can get her back in the lineup uh, maybe early to mid-February, get her some reps before we go to postseason. Um, and then one of our one of our recruits we just signed is going to show up in January. So she's graduating high school six months early to come to college. Um, and start a semester early so she can play for us in the spring. And her name's Amari Avery. Um, she's probably most widely known for starring in a Netflix movie when she was seven years old. Uh, but this kid is really highly skilled um, and could be could play a big part in the future of women's golf, uh, which is something that's great. And we advocate highly for that at USC. So um, we're really excited about what the future holds for USC. We ended our fall semester on our highest note. We finished second at the Pac-12 preview at Nenea, which was our best finish of the fall segment. Uh, we had a pretty good chance to win. Um, we had Stanford down three with four holes to play. And that was as close as anyone's come to beating them so far this season. So um, they ended up catching us and passing us and winning by two or three, I believe. But that was a good run and a good good way to end our fall segment on a nice high note. Um, vibes were good on that plane ride home. And I think our players can kind of see some progress that they've made from August to now. Um, and that is always good heading into our offseason program. So I think we're in a good spot to make a run in the spring. Um, because we're going to be able to inject two new players into our lineup um, early in the spring season, which will be great. And Jay, you also won the Indy there, right? In Anaya? Yeah, we had a, uh, a senior, Catherine Muzi, won the individual title for her first collegiate win, which is awesome. Um, Catherine's a really cool story. She came to us as a second team AJJ All-American. So, you know, no slouch as a junior golfer, but she really struggled in the transition from junior golf to college. And these are stories you just don't hear that often um, about that transition. Usually these you know, highly recruited, really bright kids like Catherine come in and transition fairly easily. Well, it was hard for her. She had, you know, she was in control of her own schedule. She had a lot more free time. School's not easy. Um, you know, and it took her about a year and a half of, of, of tough times to really figure out how to manage things. And she's improved as much as any player we've ever had in the program now. Uh, you know, she, she jumped 97 spots in the world amateur golf rankings after that win. Wow. Um, and she's, she's going to take off. I mean, there, she's got a good chance to get into the Augusta national women's amateur now because of that performance. Um, and I, I think the ceiling's very high for her. She's the longest player in college golf by 15 or 20 yards. And that's no exaggeration. She really hits it 15 to 20 past everyone else in the country, including uh, me. she's also including Derek. <laughs> and what, what, also, are talk, what are we talking swing speed wise for our listeners? Is that a 105, 108, 110, 115? No, she's got probably – she's cruising at like 12 or 13, um, and she can ramp it up to 14, 15, 16. Yes. Um, when we had a girl who just graduated for us um, from New Zealand. Her name was Amelia Garvey, and she was the longest player in college golf um, when she was here. 
And then about midway through last season, we were, we were doing some of our testing, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit with our yardage work. And Garves turned to me in the, in the simulator room and was like, are you paying attention to what's going on over in that other simulator? I'm like, yeah, I got to pay attention to everything that's going on here. And she's like, she's hitting her seven iron 176 yards cruising. I'm like, yeah, that's not really normal. And it, it, it's pretty special what she's done. She's, you know, pretty tall girl, 5'11", really long arms, long legs, and um, really has improved her golf swing with her instructor, George Pinnell, out here in Los Angeles. So uh, we're really excited for what, what the future holds for her. Um, and it, it, I think she's going to play a big part in what we do this season because not only is she long, she's our best putter. Um, strokes gain-wise, she puts at a tour level. She gains on the greens, strokes gain-wise. She has our best speed by far. She's really bought into what we do. So, you know, I'm sure you can tell stories like that excite me as a coach, um, someone who's kind of bought into our system and, and, and has improved. So we're really proud of Catherine and excited for what she can do. It's uh, a proud moment to have somebody like that replacing the stable or somebody from the stable that you had, former women's amateur champion, Gabby Ruffles, obviously friend of the show. We've had the whole family on the show at one point. It was kind of, kind of comical. But is that kind of give you peace of mind now, this would be, what, year number five for you at USC? This is my 11th year at USC. This will be my fourth season as the head coach of the women's Okay, sorry, fourth season as a head coach of the women's Okay, so does that kind of give you peace of mind and not hitting the panic button as far as, okay, we have some serious talent here. There's no no worries moving into the season and trying and keep that level leveled up. Yeah, um, yeah, seeing players improve like that kind of always does give me peace of mind, but not necessarily for that reason. It gives me more peace of mind. We, so we practice quite differently than almost any other program in the country. So we're constantly evaluating our practice system and our data that we collect, trying to figure out if it's the right way to do things. Um, and, the, and the way we practice and evaluate our players is similar to this concept that they're using in baseball now. Um, and, and there's a famous movie about it. It's called Moneyball. And you're basically breaking the game down into as, as many small parts as possible. And when people aren't getting better here that's when we hit the panic button because we're like we know or we think we know what we do works player development wise and when it's not working that's when we're you know in the office cramming you know calling people we trust who do what we do system wise and trying to figure out how we can tweak it to make it work for that person and that's really where the struggle was with this girl Catherine Muzi was she loves the data. She's a big numbers person, but the way I was presenting the data to her and presenting our testing schedule to her was not working with the way her brain works. So we had to have a lot of sit downs, very intense meetings about why we do what we do and proving to her that it works, but also giving her a little ownership of it being like, listen, you need to tell us what works for you and what is not working for you and let us tweak the system. So Yes, we have this big system of practice that we try to squeeze everybody into to make them better, but we also have flexibility within that system to work within their brains, which are you know uniquely developed, to get the most out of them. Well, and I think that's a great point because obviously I get to witness it being that uh, your team and yourself are all members of the club, but it is a very unique way to practice. And as we've talked, you know, it, it kind of ad nauseum about Rolling Hills and the practice facility and all the opportunity to do what you guys do because of the spacing. And then, you know, obviously back on the academy, you've got your own little section plus the tour level greens and all the things we do um, throwing it that way. But I, it really always goes back to me. I think one of the great stories about USC and you and I've talked about this a lot is the lineage. And so I'm not sure if people watching Lizette Salas got into the Hall of Fame uh, this weekend. And now you're looking over and, and I know you're recruiting. And, and what I don't think people understand, when you said you're on the recruiting trail. <laughs> you're recruiting for 24 and 25. You're, you, I mean, you guys don't simply, you know just getting people in, you guys reload. And, you know, you talk about this, you got to think about, it was um, a point where you guys had six people, six current players that played in the Augusta National Women's Am. I just think that's fascinating. And, you know, and I, I'm, I'm witness to it. I get to watch it all the time. But I, I think let's speak a little bit on the lineage of like, when you're on the recruiting trail with Katie, who is your assistant coach, and you guys are going out and doing that. It's got to be kind of a fun to be a little safe and asking that thought process of, hey, Here's why, and here's why, and here's why you should. Not really having to sell a lot of it other than, you know, it's, and again, I don't like to say the S word here up north, but, you know, outside of the, that program, I mean, you guys definitely have that dominance. So let's talk a little bit, let's get a little deeper into that lineage of USC women's golf and, and why it's such a tradition-laden program. Right. So like, as you said, that logo, not, I'm not wearing, I'm wearing an alternate logo here, but that logo is pretty powerful and similar to, to Alabama and, and Coach Saban, it's going to get you in the door. You know. 
they're going to pick up the phone because of what's been established here over time. And it wasn't established by me. It was established by our Hall of Fame coach who was here prior to me, Andre Gaston, um, who moved on from USC to Texas A&M. And that opened the door for me, able to, for me to be able to get this job. Um, but, t- you know, 20 years prior to this, um, she established a culture here of, of competition and excellence. And she built this program up from a, a, a very successful but not super high level successful program. Um, into the powerhouse it is now. And, you know, I think we have eight or nine players on the LPJ tour with full status this past year. Um, I think we'll probably be at seven to eight, depending on how Q series goes here next year. And so as Derek said, you know, the talent is we're not rebuilding, we're reloading. And we get to do that because of the, the power the logo holds. Now what's changed in the past few years is we've gone from simply just recruiting great junior golfers and having them be great college golfers to recruiting great junior golfers who want to be developed by their college coaches. Because I think that's a, that's a big misconception out there for a lot of junior golfers, but also just people who are fans of golf, is that a lot of college coaches don't get involved in their players' games at a very high level. Um, and, and I think having done this now for long enough, there's a lot of, of trust issues between elite swing instructors and college coaches. Because these, these great junior golfers are the entities for the, college, for the uh, swing instructors. And they're scared to send them to college where they might get developed incorrectly or change a lot of things. And then they're going to ruin their product. Um, so something we've tried to establish here is that we are into your game. So when, when we're in living rooms and kids are on campus, we're telling them, listen, we are way involved in your game. But we have you know, a big slideshow presentation of saying, this is how we develop our players like Gabby Ruffles, like Amelia Garvey, like Catherine Muzi. So I think that's how the brand has has changed, you know, in the past three or four years. And that's kind of where we're going. Um, but, but going back to what Derek said, you know, our alumni helps us a ton on the LPGA tour. Um, you know, putting our logo on their bags is a big deal for us. I don't think they realize how big of a deal for us it is for, you know, Karen Chung, who's on the Symmetra tour to send me an email like, Hey coach, can you please sign this letter for Vessel so they can put the SC logo on my bag? Like, that is a big, big deal for us because they recruit for us more than they know. Um, and, and, then, and then geographically, we have a, a nice advantage. You know, we are able to watch the best junior golfers in the world. We could do it on a weekly basis based on the junior golf tour we have here in Southern California, because I think we have the deepest crop of talent of, of anywhere in the world, quite honestly, for men's and women's golf. Um, you know, the, the joke we have is every other program is coming in here to, to take our talent away. Why are we going other places to try and find talent? And you can't keep your world that small. I understand that. But if I'm able to watch kids, you know, you're going to laugh from when they're 11, 12, 13 years old to when they're 16 and 17 and I'm offering them scholarships, I'm going to know a lot more about that kid than I will a kid from Sweden that I'm going to have watched for three days, talk to on the phone for maybe two hours. And then I'm offering them, you know, a scholarship that's worth almost half a million dollars. So there's a lot that goes into how we recruit and how we do things. But like I said, we are in a geographic advantage to most places. Love that. What, uh, what are we thinking about for this, uh, this coming season now to focus on with the students? I mean, you said you had a good fall series season. Is there anything specific that changes within the fundamental structure of the program? Are we just letting the players go out and play and still curating the specifics? What does that look like? Yeah, good question. So like, like I said earlier, we're injecting two new players into the, into the lineup, essentially, but one new player onto the roster. And, and Amari's a very unique talent where, where she's been the center of the show for her whole life and has kind of an alpha personality. And I think that's something that we were missing last year that we're getting this year because our other freshman who I mentioned earlier, who's ranked number three in the country, Cindy Coe, is that alpha. Um, she's, she's not exactly like, she's not going to lead a room like a locker room guy, but she's more like, watch me do this. And then let's just go from there where Amari, I think is more, more, a little more team centered and going to be a little more vocal in the locker room, which will help us a lot. Um, you know, getting down into the golf stuff, you know, some things we didn't do great at the beginning of the semester that we got better on as the semester went on was strategy. Um, you know, seems very simple, but we're way into the, the Scott Fawcett decade method of how to play golf. Um, very mathematical approach yeah. to the game. We were in with Scott very early. Um, kind of a funny antidote to that. If you guys are Scott Fawcett fans, my dad was one of Scott Fawcett's first sponsors when he turned pro when he was in his early twenties, I played out of the same club that he worked in the bagger mat in Dallas. So I've known Scott Fawcett since I was like four years old, which is pretty funny. He turned into this golf guru. 
Um, but we're way into that system. And, and Katie, our assistant coach and myself, did not do a good enough job at the beginning of the year with this group kind of imposing the will of that system onto them. We, we like giving our players a lot of leash here. Um, but what we noticed after our second event of the year, which we, we did not play well, uncharacteristically poor for this program was that performance was that it wasn't a talent issue. It was a little bit of a physical issue. You know, we had a bad ball striking week, we had a horrible putting week, but the biggest issue was that our five players together weren't playing the way we believe golf should be played. And this goes for clubs off tees, but most importantly for kids and on the women's side is targets into greens. And it's really an adjustment we made in early October was to start hammering with that during practice at home, you know, on the course at Rolling Hills, being like, you know, Brianna Navarosa is a sophomore for us, really highly recruited kid, you know, top 100 player in the world. It's like, Brianna, you know, you have 140 something yards. Where are you aiming this iron? And we're like really getting in there with them. And this, this falls back on me, but the team we had last year was so veteran and so seasoned that, that we didn't have to do this during practice. They already either knew it on their own or we'd already taught it to them. Um, and I think I took for granted that our returners not only bought in, but understood the system, which is a little complex on how to play golf. You know, the, the faucet stuff does require some intense learning and it is a little bit like mental skill and bunker play and chipping. Like you need to keep learning it. It's not something you just learn once and, and you can expect to be great at it. So we really doubled down on it got much better at it for Stanford. We played nicely at our, our Stanford, which is our third event. We finished fifth. You know, we had a good chance to finish second or third there. And then we went and played great at Nenea. So seeing that was, was really positive. And I think the players understood that how big that strategy aspect is. And it was something that I think we can kind of parlay into, into a good spring performance. Well, and you kind of opened the door a little bit about your father, who is a class A PGA golf professional. And, and you grew up in the game. I mean, you have multi- state titles at a Southern California powerhouse in Torrey Pines, San Diego, a plethora of all conference awards played and uh, were, were, were scheduled to play, unfortunately, through a wrist injury at, at the University of Arizona. So when a coach like yourself is at that level, meaning you did it at the high school level, you were recruited, you were supposed to be a big part of the University of Arizona men's team. And that was actually the, the first job that you got kind of into the coaching after uh, after IRI. Tell me a little bit about the thought process. I know you can't play anymore because of a, of a truly, truly kind of gruesome bad wrist injury. But that being said, when you can think the game a little differently than others, meaning you were in those situations, you know what it's like to have to hit fat side versus going flag hunting. And you know a lot of the thought process behind that. Katie, your assistant's a phenomenal player. I was lucky enough to play with her and the alumni in the, uh, the fundraising tournament. And great ball striker could probably find a way onto a team pretty simply if she still had eligibility. And that being said, it's like, how do you guys think from that really good player's point of view that that makes a difference in coaching? Yeah, it's kind of the hard part, right? Because these kids have had so much success and able to that got them here, right? And now you're trying to get into their game and figure out where you can help them. And I'll bring up Brandon Navarosa again, a sophomore on our team where, you know, she was the number two or three ranked player in the 2020 recruiting class, uh, you know, first team AJJ All-American, top 60 player in the world, I think when she came to school, so she had learned to play golf a certain way and got really good that way. But from watching her play, we figured out she was getting away with a lot of stuff. She wasn't good because of certain, certain things. She was just getting away with certain things. So in junior golf, you know, the whole locations are generally cut anywhere between five, six, seven, eight from the edge. Well, now we're moving to college where they're cut three, four, five from the edge, similar to the LPGA tour. And you get away with less and, I'm singling her out here because her core strategy is, is simply her biggest issue. And it's something she's still working through right now. Um, you know, I'm very proud of her during this little break we've had. She's, she's actually gone out and tried to find some help apart from Katie and myself on this with a name that I'm sure will come up very often in this podcast, which is our former men's coach, Chris Zambri. Um, you know, she reached out to him on her own and she's like, Hey, I need you to teach me this. I'm learning it from my coaches, but try to explain it to me differently. And he did. And they spent hours on the phone um, trying to figure out the strategy part. So, you know, the really hard part about coaching elite players is is not messing them up. <laughs> and I say that seriously, like the easiest thing to do with a good player is mess them up. Um, so, you know, I wasn't that good of a player. I was a really I was really good when I was young. And our assistant coach, like Derek said, is a really good player right now. So we are constantly going back to how would I have handled this conversation when I was playing? 
And, and Katie, are, are, she does such a good job with this when we're having conversations in the office before we have them with the kid. And she's like, hey, I think you need to change your phrasing on this because there's parts of your game that, that you take such ownership in that all your pride is built on. You need to go in with the little kid gloves on this, a little softer. Maybe you don't go so hard after, after this part of their game because this is how they identify themselves as a good player. So, so like Derek said, we're constantly going back to how would we handle this conversation as a player? Um, and I think when coaches get too far removed from those playing days, you know, a joke we always have is the game looks really easy from a cart path. Like it looks really, really easy on the ninth hole at Rolling Hills, par three, and you just can't miss it right. You can miss it anywhere left. You just can't miss it right. And we just see, you know, a couple of girls, every, every qualifier miss it right. And we're just, you know, kind of like, how does that happen? And then right away, you got it. You got one second. Yeah, but they weren't doing that on purpose. Like, it's just not that easy. They didn't do it on purpose. Maybe go and check their, their strategy. Where was your target? Where, you know, and then it was just part of my dispersion miss done. Like you got to toss it out. So those are conversations we're constantly having with ourselves. Um, I can tell you I'm 36 now. I've evolved a long way since I was 24. When I first came into coaching and that was right after playing, I was constantly fighting myself with, with co those conversations. So, um, and it's an ever evolving issue here, but it, it's something we're constantly thinking about. So I have a quick question just, you know, about the ladies game and um, how early do you start to recruit? You know, um, I know it's a little different in the men's, but you know, are you looking at 12, 13 year olds? And I saw a tweet the other day. I think she's a 12 year old and I can't remember her name for the life of me, but she was going to an event and there was a bunch of coaches. She's like pretty excited to be here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I saw a bunch of actual golf coaches saying, you're 12 years old, enjoy the moment. You know, are you getting letters at 11, 12, 13 from parents? Like what, how early are you seeing these kids come through the door, at least contacting you? So the early, the youngest kid I think we've ever watched is probably 13 years old. Um, so that's about when we start paying attention, but I'm, I'm always on the, you know, tour to tour cup is the big Southern California junior golf tour. I'm on that webpage every weekend and I'm looking at the 11 to 12 year old division, just trying to find some names that are, you know, consistently popping up on the top of the leaderboard because in the sport we're at generally the great ones have started at that age. So it's a, we're paying attention to names about 12 years old. Yeah. And again, it's funny because like when you talk about the game of tennis, you know, they sort of know, at least in the female side, you know, at 10, 11 years old, and I go, I know golf's a little bit you know, 12, 13, you can kind of have a good prediction, but anyway, it's just interesting. Uh, you know, you're not seeing eight year old fathers or, you know, daughters getting letters for eight, their eight year old yet. Oh, we're getting those emails. Those easy, those emails are coming through. I'm just not paying attention. watching. Right. Them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Justin, you kind of touched on a little bit. You had an introduction to golf in, in Dallas, and, and your father was a club pro. Maybe take us all the way back. Let's do a little time travel. Let's talk about Justin, the junior player, and give us the evolution of Justin to the coach. So I was born in Los Angeles, but uh, moved when I was two years old to Dallas. Um, then grew up in Plano, Texas, which is now a, a huge suburb of Dallas. But when I moved there, there was nobody there. Um, but it turned into one of the best experiences of my life. So we lived in Dallas for 12 years. And what was awesome about growing up in Dallas is we were at a club with tons of great junior golfers. And I know this matters a lot to Derek is having this similar deal at Rolling Hills. But, you know, I was one of maybe a dozen kids there that went on to play Division One golf, um, which is pretty cool. We had a great junior program. You know, when I was seven, eight years old, my, my mom was just dropping me off at the course. My dad was probably there hitting balls anyways, but dropped me off and I'd go find some buddies who were there and we'd go hit balls and then we'd go you know, putt for some dough and then we go eat and come back out. So, you know, that was a really great time in my life. And, and I mentioned it earlier, you know, my dad was probably there. Um, so he played the Australasian tour straight out of high school. He didn't go to college. I think if he did, he was going to go to Arizona state, which is pretty funny because that's a huge rival of where I went to school. Um, so he turned pro at 18, moved out of his house at LA, uh, started playing mini tour stuff around Southern California and California, then went to Asia and Australia. Um, and then he ended up playing the PGA Tour. Uh, I think 79, 80, 80, 81 were his two years with full status on tour. Um, and then towards the end of that second year, I think my mom got to him and said, hey, you know, I want to have a family and I kind of want to have some money. So maybe you need to look at doing something else. <laughs> um, so he quit the game then. And then he got into the uh, owner operator side of golf. He was, a, he was a, not necessarily a club professional. He was a PGA member, uh, but he got into the owner operator side. Um, working for Club Corp, which is a company that's still around in Dallas. 
Um, and then when he and his partner separated from club court, started his own deal. And that's when I moved back to San Diego, uh, moved back to San Diego right before high school. And as Derek mentioned earlier, I went to Torrey Pines High School, which is an awesome high school in San Diego. Huge athletic department. It's almost like a mini college campus, which was a great experience. Um, got to play with some great players there. My junior year, we had six players on that team get Division One scholarships, which is wow. pretty spectacular. So we had one guy That's sitting awesome. at home that got a full scholarship to play for University of San Diego, which is pretty cool. Uh, and on that team was a name you guys might recognize is Jamie Lovemark, who ended up going to play at USC. I played two years with Jamie. Uh, he was unbelievable. He was one of the best golfers I've ever seen at that age. Even it's to funny. This I was going to say, sorry to interrupt you. It's funny. Yeah. We, he spends a lot of time down in Palm Desert. So I used to run into him all the, the gym all the time, which is pretty cool. Well, and he's it is just a gym big, tall dude. He's, exactly. Yeah. He could have been a free safety in the NFL. He could have played center field and baseball. Like he was the first of a lot of great athletes now that play golf. And as Justin was talking about, I mean, he could have done anything. And Lovey was such a whole, just it's hard to fathom that somebody is that athletic playing the game of golf. And when I spent some time at Rancho Santa Fe, uh, you know, Lovey would come back out and, you know, it's him standing next to Charlie and Phil. And it's like, it's just insane. Like, again, Phil was going through the, the, the whole body thing and changing his thing. And Charlie was getting after it physically and it turned into the player he is now. But like when Lovey is around, it's, it's kind of like standing next to a, to a free safety and it's like, it's, it's slightly imposing. And so that team at Torrey Pines, a lot of those guys were members at the ranch. That's, that's, that's hard to talk about, you know, when you can really think, you know, you talk modern day or maybe Bosco down here in Southern California football, but Torrey Pines was, it was unbelievable. And as he said, imagine being number six, and you've got a full ride and you can't make a squad. I mean, that, that's pretty that's, crazy. That's pretty elite talent level there for sure. Okay, Justin, carry on. I apologize for interrupting you. No, no, it's great. So Lovey's one of my good buddies and um, you know, he's battling some injuries now, but I think he's finally getting healthy and you need to get back out there soon. So that's, so that was fun to play with him in high school. And then I went on from there to the university of Arizona. Um, I committed there really early, which was kind of rare back then. Um, so that would have been about 2003. I think I committed at the end of my sophomore year, which is, uh, unheard of, but that's where I wanted to go. There was a coach there named Rick LaRose, who's on the Mount Rushmore of college golf coaches. Um, I think he ended up being there for 35 years when he finally retired uh, but he was known as like a hard nosed tough dude. And that's who I wanted to play for because quite honestly, that's what my dad was with my game. I loved it. Um, you know, my dad came to me, I think it was my freshman year of high school and basically asked me, he's like, you know, do you want me to push you or do you want me to kind of back off with your game? And I'm like, no, I want you in there. Like I trust your eye. Um, at that point, he kind of been my main swing, swing instructor. Um, but I really told him, I was like, I want you to push me. I want you to be tough on me because I think it's going to make me better. So that's what I was looking for in a college coach. Um, so I went to the University of Arizona, uh, had a great time there. I, I had like, our roster was huge. I had like 18 dudes on my team. I was like one of eight or nine freshmen. It was like, it was a, like a mini frat. It was awesome. It was the most fun we've ever had in our entire lives. It was super competitive. Uh, we were really good when I got there. Unfortunately, towards the end of my five years there, we started tailing off rankings wise, but um, our first couple of years, we were still one of the premier programs in the country. Um, you know, and I, I, I owe a lot to where I'm at now to Coach LaRose, who I played for there, because it would have been very early for him after my sophomore year to cut me loose. Um, so I played my first year, played a little bit my first semester, started playing really well, actually, over winter break, played really nicely in an amateur event my, my freshman year. Then we had our home event was our first event of the spring season. Um, I played it, qualified as an individual, played. Played poorly the first round, got hurt in my second round, um, really banged up my wrist in the desert, like really, really bad. Decided to play the third round, which turns out might have ended my career, but I played really well that round. Um, and that's kind of where I felt like I was hitting my stride. So went to the doctor. He's like, you need surgery. I was like, well, can we put it off? And, you know, dealing with our, our medical folk at uh, Arizona who did a great job with me, they're like, yeah, you can put it off. So I tried to play the next couple months, couldn't do it. Ended up having to have surgery that summer, three months off, came back, felt great, was playing great, you know, gearing up for the start of my sophomore season, first day qualifying, tore it again. Knew oh. it right off the bat, right in the middle of the first round, done. Went to coach, coach like, okay, go back to campus, campus, MRI, tore the same thing. Go back to doctor, doctor's like, okay, it's called a, a TFCC. It's basically like an ACL of the wrist. And so they're oh. like, okay, we'll fix it again. Go in there add an extra suture, 
same thing. Three months rehab turned into four months. We'll be more careful this time. Ease back into it. Six months in, fully cleared. Okay, cool. Go back out and play in the spring a little bit. A couple rounds in, bang, tore it again. Oh. So now, Heart, now things are a little dicey, man. right? So now I go back to the doctor and they're like, well, we don't really repair this a third time. You know, might you probably just try to play without it, you know, with it torn. So we did that for a little bit. Anyways, I ended up having five wrist surgeries. Um, <laughs> and I was, uh, I was a little bit of a medical experiment. And like I said, I'm very grateful to Arizona, how they handle it. I flew everywhere. I went to all the Mayo clinics in the country. Um, I went to Pittsburgh because there was a big risk guy at UPMC in Pittsburgh. I mean, I was going everywhere and they were going to, I mean, there was one doctor at UPMC who wanted to do the surgery to write a paper about me. And I'm like, well, I kind of don't want to be an experiment. <laughs> so I think maybe we'll pass on that one. Um, anyway, so back to the, back to the main point of this, which was coach Thoreau. So um, my, I think it was my fourth year, my red shirt junior, he pulled me into his office. He's like, listen, you're just not going to get medically cleared to play here anymore. Um, you know, that's just not a risk we're willing to take. And, you know, he was like my second dad and he was, he had a good relationship with my dad. Um, he's like, you know, you need to probably start thinking about doing something else for a living. Now, if you can come back and play for us and you're healthy, go ahead. And that's what I told him. I wanted to get into college coaching and to his credit. He's like, okay. He's like, you know, keep rehabbing, but as you're rehabbing and, and I was rehabbing three to four hours a day, it wasn't just like go to the equipment, you know, go to the uh, training room, get some ice and stem. And that was it. Like we were doing intense rehab, but he's like, I want you to schedule a rehab around practice because I want you at practice every day. And if you're really going to do this, I want you to live the life of it. So you're going to be in my cart, riding around with me, shadowing me at practice. So it was, it was a strange deal because I was on the team living with two guys who were on our starting lineup, but I was essentially like our third coach, you know, so it didn't take long for me to almost turn into coach LaRose, you know, kind of a <laughs> grumpy older dude who's, you know, getting mad when they're hitting bad shots or, or slacking off at practice. Um, but I, I really owe him a lot for what he did with me. I started going on the road with him my last season, um, because he's like, listen, this is another part of it. You know, you gotta get used to being on the road and, and sustaining bad rounds that, that you're not really responsible for because you have way less control as a coach as you do as a player. So he really took me under his wing. Um, and, and I owe him a lot to where I am now. Love it. So, so I have a question, like, you know, interesting Canadian content, but was Derek Gillespie, did you ever cross paths with Derek? The Rocky. So I know Derek really well, really, so, really well. And it's interesting that he picked Arizona at that time. Cause you know, you think of Derek and coach LaRose and may not be the best combo, but I guess now the Galvis would have been on the women's team at that time that you were there or no. He was just before me. Okay. She turned, then, I think we would have crossed over had she stayed four years. Okay. And Ricky uh, Barnes, was he there? He left two years before me, but Ricky's brother, Andy, who I believe now caddies for Charlie Hoffman, was my assistant coach my senior year. Nice. So you know Derek. Though. Derek and I have known each other, gosh, going back 30 years now. I know Derek really, really well. We saw, He used to come down to, to Tucson as an alumni, and he'd, he'd be good to us. He'd take us out, and, and we'd have a good time, as I'm sure you know uh, Absolutely. Derek can do. So no, it was awesome. And then He's... probably the probably the best player that I knew when I was there was the name Chris Nalen. Oh, yeah. um, who actually was injured and went back to coaching Arizona and just left to go back to playing. But Chris played the nationwide Nike corn Ferry tour forever. And I actually lived with him um, towards the end of my college career and after college when I was uh, coaching at Arizona. So he was a big influence on me as well. And he was really close with, he played on the team with Ricky, Ricky Barnes, which is probably Arizona's best team. So being around those guys was awesome. Nice. I still see Derek's name on Canada Tour leaderboards here, or PGA Tour Canada leaderboards. So every once in a while, he plays an event. He's kind of like Ken Fukushima. I don't know if you know that name, but those two He's guys. He's got to be way up there on the all-time money Fuki list. Fuki has to be way well up there on the all-time money list. I saw Fuki on the leaderboard not that long ago. He finished God. sixth at the uh, Times Colonist uh, Cantor event on the island like this summer and i was like man aren't you like 73 years old now so justin just a quick just a quick uh fuki thing so fuki when i was in the desert at the quarry in the early part of the 2000s was kind of the caddy du jour so if somebody really needed a drop kind of like greg puga is up here uh if you needed like that one big horse fuki would fly into town and he'd he'd rake a couple of uh, ball fixers out of the divot give you a quick or out of the shop give you a quick nod away he went Somehow I'm sure it was worth about a grand in his pocket. And then he'd be gone for like three weeks and you'd yeah. see like this tour leaderboard in Fiji. And he's like a yeah. T seven 
yeah. then he's on this like great trip. The next time you see him, he's, you know, he's up in Newfoundland trying to do an, a partner better ball. Like you just, it was, it was insane to watch him, but like every once in a while, kind of like he's talking about Derek, you would just drop in and it's like, Oh, Hey, it's Fuki. How are you? It's like, where did you come from? Yeah, it's legit. I don't know if he has a jet or what his deal is. Like he's he's leading the Iceland Open and then he's in Australia in the Outback, and it's like, man. Anyway, wonderful world uh, yeah. golf is provided for him. Wonderful people, two good guys, Derek for sure. One of them. Uh, hey, I think. Go ahead, buddy. Go ahead, Derek. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, Justin. I know we're going to kind of get into the back end of the pod here in a second, but the last thing I want to touch on is is Parksy talk. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Gabby. Gabby being a U.S. Am champion and runner up next year, and ran into the buzzsaw that was Rojang. Obviously, you played in a USAM at Oakmont, which if you're going to play in one, probably pretty special place to, to tee one up on. So when you start looking at these, these girls and these, these, excuse me, the members of your team and they're going forward and you see now they, you know, Augusta National is doing an insanely positive thing. Do you ever have that thought of as they get out of college, a couple of, of, your, of your team thinking of that high level amateur thought process? Or are the majority of them always looking to make a living playing the game? A majority are looking to play the game for a living, uh, especially our scholarship players that we're sure. recruiting. Um, I would like to see that kind of mid-am part of the women's game grow. I think that's a huge untapped uh, part of women's golf that doesn't get enough. Uh, I, I guess it's an access issue too, because there's sure. simply just not enough great women's amateur events. Like even my elite players struggle to find a full summer schedule. Um, and this is something that our coaches association is talking about and trying to fix. And I, I commend Augusta for what they've done with that women's amateur. Um, but Derek, you know, being around our men's team and some of the really successful players we've oh, had even here, Stewart, like, right? Yeah. Right. Stu, um, Kaito Nishi was a really high, high ranked player on our men's team. Yushin Lin, Chang Jin, these are, you know, top 10 players in the world. Their summer schedule is they fly to the East coast and they're gone for six weeks playing the coolest events at the coolest places with their buddies all summer. On the women's side, we just don't have that. There aren't enough high-level events during summer. And, and going back to your original thought here, Derek, is the great mid-ams playing those events, Stuart Hagestad from USC and guys like that. We're on the women's side, you know, it's like Megan Stassi and a couple others that can go play in the women's Western, but there's just not enough consistency with those events to, I think, have enough attention on it to make it valuable. Um, and if we could grow those events, I think the players would then see some value and maybe I'll go into the business world, but Hey, my boss might give me a couple weeks off. Um, like Stuart Hagestads does to go play these big events, become a top 10 amateur in the world, play on the Curtis cup team, um, qualify for us open, you know, stuff like that. So I think it's an untapped part of the game that we need to do a better job growing. But, but like I said, our, our women's, uh, golf coaches association, it's something that they're trying to do to give these women more opportunity as they graduate college and decide not to turn pro because that's a whole nother topic of how difficult that is and, and how bad the money is quite frankly, um, as far as guaranteed money. So it's another Avenue that, that we think we can explore to help these pe- uh, these players long-term. Well, and even on the last one, you know, you just had this weekend, I saw Allison and Jay Chang advanced and obviously, unfortunately, Aliyah and Gabby and, and Amelia didn't get to go forward. So it's like, you're talking that you just said you had four in the top 25 in the world amateur rankings and two, one of which left early. And it's like, I watch you and, you know, I can just tell in the eyes and, you know, we talk and if we're sitting at the 900 and kicking it and talking about all this other stuff, like you can just look like these guys are literally, you've got to talk about, like, you've got to make them feel good about their decision if they decide to leave early. And I've got to be honest with you as a coach, knowing what we know about life and I'm a little older than you, but that can't be an easy conversation knowing that another year, or some structure or some things would make them probably better human beings, not necessarily better players, which in the end I know is your, and JT spoke about it a little bit as well. It's like, it really is a huge aspect to what you guys do. It's not just to produce scores on a, on a leaderboard. So the last question I have for you is let's talk just a little bit about, Hey, I want to leave out my sophomore year. And you're like, well, I didn't recruit that way. Scholarships don't fall that way, but yeah, you go ahead and I'm going to support that. But you know, I'm not sure it's the right move. It's a difficult conversation because I, I always lead that conversation with this to, to the player and their parents is I am biased. So anything I say is coming across bias, but I'm going to try to be as middle ground here as possible. So what we do as an athletic department, and this is where USC is so great because it's not just men's and women's golf. It's all of our sports. We have people who come in for a couple of years 
and then are going to want to go do this for a living, whether it's football, basketball. I mean, we've had track athletes do it. So our department's well prepared with information where we can get in touch with agents and have, they can have discussions with these players to find out what you're worth because the guaranteed money is a huge part in leaving school early. Um, and it is a difficult discussion because you never want to tell someone they're not good enough because that's something as a coach, you just, that's a conversation you never want to have. But you also have a job to produce the best product at the school possible. And I think an interesting part of this, Derek, I think we've had this conversation a few times, is how your athletic department views your program. And something I've tried to do in the past few years here is, yes, winning tournaments is very, very important to the to USC and women's golf. You know, we win about six tournaments a year the past four years, which leads the country by over, you know, one and a half tournaments a year. So we win over one and a half more tournaments a year than, than Duke, who would be second in that. But maybe we should be judged on how our players are leaving here, similar to a Kentucky basketball. Like, I, I actually think John Calipari, who's a Kentucky basketball coach, views himself as a success if he can recruit these super high-level kids, make them better, spin them out to the, to the NBA and make, a million, make millions of dollars. Because ultimately, why do you go to school? You go to school to get a job where you can make a bunch of money and make a great living. So that's kind of a, a shift we've had to make in our department as we're recruiting these kids who are up front telling us we're going to be here for one, two, or three years. Um, but those conversations are always difficult. We try to give them as much data as possible, um, so they can make the best decision. But like I said earlier, we know we're biased. We let them know we're biased and some ask for our input and some don't, um, you know, Gabby Ruffles decision. We, we did have some input. I had some great conversations with her and her mom, uh, about the route they were taking, but then there's another case and another kid I'm really close with, which is Jennifer Chang, which we didn't have much input in that decision at all. And I respected that family's decision. It was a big financial decision for the family. They thought it was time for her to go and she had our support. And to this day, I'm happy I supported her. You know, I, I retweeted a picture of her. She was carrying our yardage book at Q school. She had our head cover on, uh, on her bag. You know, that, that's great branding for us. So is it always clean? No, it's very rarely clean because they're leaving in the middle of our season. But we always want to be there to support our athletes because as corny as it sounds, they're, they're going to be Trojans for the rest of their lives. And, you know, someone like Annie Park, who's gone on to have a great career on the LPGA Tour and win a bunch of money, we want her to come back and be part of our program. And she's great at that. Sophia Popov, who just won the British Open a couple of years ago, great Trojan logo on the bag. So we always want to keep good relationships with our, our players, whether they do leave early or not. But it is a very, very difficult conversation to have. So I have one here. And it's funny you, you brought up like, you know, in picking a school, you're preparing these kids for the next phase of making money and things like that. And, you know, it's a conversation I had with Roger Murray, Jamal Murray's dad. And, you know, when he was getting recruited, there was probably 400 letters. Every division one school would have taken Jamal. And the one letter they didn't get when he was a sophomore was Kentucky. And, you know, they sat on side, they kept preparing, they tried to prepare themselves. But in, in Roger's eyes, if you don't get that letter from Kentucky, you're not good enough to go to the NBA. It was the choice of, you know, one and done and going to Kentucky and, you know, making all that money. And if it's not Kentucky, then it's, it should be Duke or Harvard or, you know, another school from an education perspective, because, you know, and obviously he went, I think fourth overall and, you know, was one and done and just signed $300 million and got paid. So, you know, obviously it was the right choice, but it's interesting how you said, you know, their view was, we're not good enough to get to the next level it has to be kentucky or nothing you know if not we're going to pick a school that's going to you know best suit us for the future and you know for the the working world so interesting kind of tidbit there so another perspective so yeah very cool all right boys we're uh, we're nearing the uh, that magical hour so we're going to transition to the last segment of the show with you justin we like to call this portion of the show the rapid fire 10 so 10 skill testing questions we're going to get to deep dive on justin get to know you a little bit so if you're ready to go, let's do it. All right. Question number one, Justin, the rapid fire, not so rapid fire, brought, by, brought to you by Cricket Shirts. What did you have for breakfast today? Honey Nut Cheerios. And Honey Nut Cheerios. Three cups of yes. coffee. I like that. That's a great go-to. Fantastic. Coach uh, JT was on last night, and he had, what did he have, boys? Cheesecake for breakfast? Yesterday? Cheesecake. Cheesecake. Well, if you know anything about Coach Higgins, you know, only the finest for him. So <laughs> imported, we imported from France, I assume. Exactly. Like exactly. It's funny, too, because a quick one, two on that. Justin is perpetual motion. 
never in the same spot for more than a millisecond. Try and sit down. I keep him in my office. I have a little timer right at my desk. I push start <laughs> and I try to see how long we can talk before he just starts the rock and then he's gone. And it's like, okay, I got to go. Like, let's go undefeated course. boys. <laughs> <laughs> and then JT is the complete converse that it's crossed the leg. It's lean back. It's like, let's do this for as long as you can. Oh yeah. No, you can chat. You can chat it up. Yeah. Yeah. ADD well, he's been, he's been sitting still the whole time. So appreciate it. Justin. <laughs> Took the see my leg. Or whatever. Just bouncing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Question number two. We'll make this fast. Question number two. We know you're not playing that much anymore, but uh, who are you supporting? What's in the bag? Maybe walk us through your top to the bottom here. Uh, Ping guy. Ping takes Ping great guy. care of our, our program. We're actually, uh, like I say, we're one of the few uh, women's programs in the country that has a ping contract. Uh, but I did play that stuff in college. So I'm not just plugging them <laughs> because they take great care of my players. Uh, but I've been a ping guy for a, a long, long time. Titleist golf ball. Um, you know, the only ping product that's not in the bag, and Derek knows this for being a San Diego kid, was it's got to be a Scotty putter. Um, probably the coolest thing that golf brought me was access to that, that Scotty studio a lot because I was on a really good high school team down there. So I uh, got a fair share of a custom collection. So one of those is always going to be in the bag. Any specifics on the ball? We've had a few guys on the show that have really talked well about the 2019 Pro V. I haven't played since 2014, so I, I haven't really experienced the 19. Um, but if it's a title from the Pro V, it's probably good enough for me and good enough for my team, too. So. I like that. Okay. Uh, question number three. Justin, are you an outfit guy? Do you care what you look like when you go to the golf course aside from events? Do you get dressed in the dark? What's your, what's your look when you go to the golf course? Uh, we are well taken care of by Nike. Um, so they, they take really good care of our team. So that's, that's what I got on. I think Derek's laughing because he knows I like to sneak in my Lulu ABC pants. Oh, um, shout out yes. Vancouver. So by the way, we now that. carry Lulu in the golf shop. And uh, first thing Justin said, yep, um, whatever, whenever, how many size, let's go. <laughs> Pre-order, pre-bookings in. For yeah, whatever yeah, it takes. Very much so, very much so. But no, Nike's been good. And uh, they actually took care of me when I was a uh, yeah, junior golfer as well. And Arizona was a Nike school, so. Very brand loyal. No three stripes in this house. I told my my fiance downstairs when we moved in together. You got to get rid of those Adidas. We got to get you some checks. <laughs> Everything goes in this garbage bag. And yes, exactly. exactly. Love that. Question number four. We know you're not playing that much anymore. What does a warm up routine like look like for a competitive player on your on your squad? Is there anything specific you guys go through? Is it catered to each player individually? What does that kind of warm up routine look like? We're very individualized. Um, you know, we have generally we have two cars on the road, uh, our assistant coach and myself. So we'll have two different times we leave for the course. Um, we have some players who are teeing off last who want to go in the first car because they like an hour and 50 minutes if they can get it. We have some players, Malia Nam, who's coming back next after her hip surgery next semester. She would take about 35 minutes if she could get it. So uh, we're all over the map. We just like them to be there early enough to be comfortable. And one thing we've dove into is a lot of mental skill work, a lot of meditation. So what we've seen recently in the past, you know, five or six years is our, our van times are, are leaving a little earlier because our kids have pre-recorded meditation stuff from our sports psychologist, Kevin Sarduk, that they do at the course. So the routines are changing quite a bit. Um, the one aspect in college golf that hasn't quite gotten tour level yet would be the, uh, the physio stuff, just because where we're at hotel-wise and golf course-wise, it's a little more difficult. Um, but that's that's one thing that I think you'll start to see ramped up in college is, is pre-round work in the weight room, uh, similar to what they do on the tour. Yeah, interesting. So for all our four jack listeners, death metal in the six pack on the way to the golf course might not be the best way to start the club championship off with. But uh, we, we do know, like a little ACDC on the way to the course, especially okay. final round. We wear all black. We'll go a little back in black. So we'll get a little fired up for that. A little pump up music. Love yeah. that. Uh, maybe talk us through. Question number five is kind of a little more deeper one, but swing thoughts, maybe something that translates from a competitive collegiate player into an amateur player. Is there something you want to think about going to the first tee? This is kind of a carryover from the last one. Yeah, and this is a great question. I could go for hours on this. I promise I won't. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one thing we do in our program is, is we really preach the ball flight laws. Like, what is your ball doing? And let's fix your shape to fix your swing. Let's not fix your swing to fix your shape. Um, I think that's why we connected so well when Gabby Ruffles was here and, and we saw her rankings kind of ranking shoot up because simply put with Gabby, if she was overcutting it, she would try to hit a topspin forehand and just try to draw it more. And if she was overdrawing it, she would try to hit like a slice backhand. And as soon as it flew straight on the range, that's the swing she was going to take to the tee. That's the thought. 
Um, so that's something we really like to teach. If you can understand your ball flight, your swing fix becomes a lot easier. I know that's tough for people. They don't have the launch monitor around all the time. But if you can dive in on YouTube or wherever and understand ball flight, especially with irons where there's no gear effect, promise I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds here. Um, you can really start to fix your swing easier on the golf course. So that's something I think a lot of amateurs can take hold of is, is really get into those new ball flight laws, not the old ones because those are backwards, the new one. And, and if not, you know, I shameless plug, you might be able to see your local PGA golf professional there to help yes. too. See your PGA golf professional. Love that. We're heading to the turn. We need to fuel up. What's our go-to snack? It's a non-competitive day, Justin. Are we looking for a six-pack and a pack of cigarettes, protein bar to water? What's our go-to snack? Try to stay away from the for the heaters. Uh, NCAA rules don't really love those. If I'm playing with Derek, we're we're going to tap the Rockies. The mountains are going to be blue. We're going to knock down some Coors Lights. Um, okay. God, you know what? As a college coach, you really find yourself eating like a lot of Cliff Bars. It's kind of disgusting. Um, miss lunch a lot. I think like my max once I had like seven or eight on a 36 hole day. It was disgusting. It was awful. Um, but Cliff Bars are delicious. Just not in, not in that capacity. I don't think it's really good for you. I, uh, it's interesting. It's too bad that there's not a plant-based program offering. That's some kind of a kit that would be uh, curated to the uh, competitive athlete space, but maybe down the road. And by I the did. way, Justin, uh, your counterpart started with cheesecake, but only wanted an orange or an apple at the turn. No, dude, JT won't eat during rounds. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I will say a big <laughs> favorite of our team is goldfish. Like we cannot keep goldfish in stock in the athletic department. Um, I like that. Yeah, it's like it's like crack for those kids. So they'll eat them if you can get them. They'll eat them. Nice. Convenient snack. Maybe give us uh, for question number seven. One of your favorite golf memories? Something you celebrated on the course? Maybe something as a kid, sometime with your father. Something really, really cool that that's really stood out in your mind. It's gonna be two things, but they're tied in. So one, we uh, Athens, Georgia holds a special place in my part in my heart. That's where we won our national championship in 2013 at UGA's golf course. So. If you ever look up the USC women's golf schedule, we always make a trip mid-March back to Athens, Georgia to play in the Liz Murphy. My buddy coach is there. So just to get back there, and I love that golf course. But a tie into that, because we won the national championship that year, our athletic director at the time was a uh, member at a little club in Georgia. Um, so he took us to Augusta to play a, a little golf course down there as a team. So that was a pretty sweet experience. That was actually my last round of, uh, of golf I played it was January 2014 at, at Augusta National Golf Club. So to be able to play that with some members of the team that were on that championship team was pretty special. Would we and we, stayed, and we stayed in Eisenhower. Um, four months before we went on that trip, I just decided I was just going to suck it up. I'm, I was like, because I'm not going and playing awful. Like, I'm not doing it. So I'm going to practice. So went to, went to Scottsdale, got dialed in at ping, came back, and I just practiced every day after practice felt awful i mean i was just sucking down advil like it was good for me which at that point i'm sure it wasn't went on the trip it was we teed off the first day it was 28 degrees oh that's no complaints the these are southern california kids who won't go practice if it's 55 degrees but it was 28 no complaints best two and a half days of my life it was unbelievable so amped up that nothing would have uh you know rained on that parade that's so cool have you been to Canada, Justin? And if there's a favorite golf course, we'd love you to share it with our audience. I have been. I've been to Vancouver and Victoria. I caddied for my college roommate who graduated and was playing the Canadian Tour at the time in Victoria. Victoria is sick. I love that place. I would move there in a heartbeat. Um, I do not remember which golf course we played. It probably tells you how much I drank as a caddy that week. Um, <laughs> but it was a uh, – it was a good time, and I, I love it. Vancouver is one of my favorite cities in, in the world, and I, I love my time I spent up there. Officially, that's a point on the board for West Coast Canada, David. Mark that down. Uh, 114 to 1, so okay. winning. Put, put the point down. Still counts. <laughs> Justin, we always like to ask our guests the cliche question. If you could play as a five-some, you're the fifth. Give us your top four players you'd want to play with, your dream foursome. This is tough. I actually thought that I might get asked this. So I'd have to go with my pops. He's got to be in there. Um, I would go with my college coach, Coach LaRose, just because I need someone to yell at me and keep me motivated to play well <laughs> while I'm out there. Um, I'm going to put Derek in there because I need someone to keep me hydrated when I'm playing. And, and Derek's going to fuel fuel the system um, with some good, good Coors lights. Um, and then this is going to shock some people. I'm going to put Gabby Ruffles in my group. Because 
the time I got to spend with her in college was so was so cool. And I actually haven't gotten to spend a bunch of time with her now that she's left school as a pro. I talk to her all the time. Um, but one of my coolest golf memories was caddying for her in both those U.S. amateurs, the one she won and the one she lost in the finals. Uh, and I think we, we'd spend a lot of the, uh, the round rehashing that. Um, and and I, I, her game's just so fun to watch. She's such a great athlete, such a great ball striker. I think I'd hit it better just by watching her, which I would need. Uh, so I think I'd throw her in, in, in that in that group as well. I just sent her a text, so there you go. Hey, you'll get, uh, you'll, I'm sure you'll get a message later on. Somebody's going to be upset. Yeah, somebody's going to be upset. It's okay. Um, question number 10 and the final question of the evening. I guess this one goes a little bit deeper, but for you, Justin, can you define what has really fueled this journey for you? Uh, it's kind of a corny answer, but it's like just my love of the game. I love golf. Like I just love, love, love golf. Um, I never want to do anything but work in golf, whether it's coaching or something else. Uh, probably comes from how I was raised. You know, I was around the game from when I was born. I started playing when I was two. Um, the game's given my family a lot. You know, my dad worked really hard to, to play at a high level, and also being owner operator at the level he was. Um, so I, I do appreciate that and. Um, kind of where Derek comes from. I appreciate the PGA side of the business and, and what they do to give back to the game. Um, so I love my job. You know, I have buddies who are accountants and bankers and they do really well. And and it's funny. We have the conversation every time we get together. They're like, you actually like get excited to wake up and go to work? I'm like, yeah, dude, I love it. Like I'm in some like tiny town in the Midwest and I get to go recruit and I love it. Um, so it's really just a love for the game that kind of kind of fuels what I do. And I'm going mean, to have a plan. As long as you see it, keep me, I'll do it for as long as as long as they'll do that. And then I'm going to throw one more in there uh, just real quickly. And one of the things is everybody knows I'm not the golf nerd of, of the group. I'm, I'm, I'm always the other guy on the, on the other side of the room. But that being said, you've been powerhouse USC, Arizona. You played at one of the best college or excuse me, high school programs in the country. You've seen it all. You grew up playing around great players. Somebody has to shoot 65 for your life. Somebody you've played with. I want to know who you're putting in that position. Wow, that's that good. is such a good question. Hang on, I need a second here. It's going to be Annie Park, which I think surprised you. I think that no, was surprised It you. was. I thought for sure. I thought 100%. I thought 100% you were going to go Gillespie. So. Oh, or Lumbark, <laughs> yeah, know, you, totally. See, my experiences with D-Rocky and, and – <laughs> Off the golf course. Is, yeah, he's not necessarily in the best shape to go put up a round when I see him. Now, I have played with him in that state at Shadow Creek, and he put up a phenomenal round. He took a lot of poker chips out of my pocket that day. But I'm just not seeing the stability the night sure. before that I need from him. And the reason I've picked Annie ahead of Jennifer Chang, Gabby Ruffles, is because you know I've known Annie for so long, and she truly has the biggest heart of any golfer that's ever played for me. And if my life was on the line – she would try harder, Correct. but just the right amount of hard. Because <laughs> when there's not something that important on the line, I know Annie enough to know she's not going to try very hard. So um, she's just such a good kid. I thought that, but but Derek, the uh, Gillespie one would be interesting. I might choose him for a different different activity. That's than probably and just to throw in Annie Park, one of our assistants at, at the club at Rolling Hills just had a birthday. Guess who sent a cake? Oh wow, Annie Park, really? Yeah, the goat. It's the goat. She's, she she is unbelievable. Uh, I'm sure Gillespie would be busy looking for hair product or something, so he might not be spending the time on the range. Anyway, Justin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Can't thank you enough for making some time. Guys, any final thoughts for Justin before we let him off the hook? As always, we everybody, I'm sure that when they listen, they're going to understand how close we are, and I, I think the world of Justin, and more importantly, what he's brought to our club. You know, One of the visions we had when we reopened, along with Chris Ambry and Justin, is was to, to make their team members – and it, I'm obviously a little biased because I, I get to spend a lot of time with him. But, you know, he's had a couple of young ladies like Aaliyah and, and he's talked about Cindy and some of these girls. The great thing that I, I really want to, you know, the way he was raised in the PGA and his father, every one of his team comes into the golf shop. They say hello. They say thank you. They tell us how the golf course was. Their constructive criticism is, is absolutely desired. But more importantly, they're a pure understanding and shadow of, of, of him. They, they know what he wants. 
He is direct. He is clear. And it's been a fantastic ride for us. But I don't think he'll ever quite know what he's brought to our facility. You know, it's such a great thing to talk about three-time national champions. They recruit there and they're allowed to be members. And it, it's literally our benefit, but more importantly, it's our pleasure to have them. And, and I can't say enough, enough, excuse me, enough good things about Justin, Katie, and the program. Yeah, phenomenal. It's a great way to end it. Awesome. Well, Justin, we wish you all the best after the off season here or the, the Christmas break. Uh, spring and summer, obviously, and uh, excited to meet you in person at some point over at Rolling Hills. Sure yeah, we'll come and, on uh, down. Bring we'll some cold Coors Light. We're going to get around it and be great. There you go. Love it. All right, man. Take care. All the best. 